You are listening to The Bulletproof Bailey Show. I'm your host, Bailey. I'm a certified firearms instructor, health and wellness expert, and I am here to help you take a holistic approach to bulletproofing your life. From drug raids in South Beach to teaching civilians like you and me how to better defend ourselves and our homes, today's guest has seriously done it all. Rob Chadwick is a former FBI agent. He spent over 20 years in the Bureau in a variety of positions, most recently as the unit chief for the tactical training unit in Quantico. That's pretty badass if you ask me. Currently, he finds himself at Delta Defense as the director of education and training. For those who don't know, Delta Defense is the company behind the United States Concealed Carry Association, better known as the USCCA, and he is continuing his mission and service to the people of the United States to make sure that they are preparing themselves properly when it comes to defending their lives and the lives of their loved ones. I'm so excited for you to hear this interview, and without further ado, this is Rob Chadwick. I'm so thankful that you were willing to come on today. And I guess to get started, uh, how about, can you just give us a little bit of a background about who you are, you know, what you've done, what what got you there, et cetera? Sure. So my current uh, position here at uh, the USCCA, I'm the Director of uh, Education and Training. I've uh, been here about three months. Uh, came to this job uh, from the FBI, where I served as a special agent for 22 years. 30 total years in law enforcement. I began my law enforcement career with the Fairfax County, Virginia Police Department in the very early 90s. Loved every minute of it. Great department, well-funded, and got my dream job as a canine handler fairly early in my career there. But had the opportunity to work for the FBI, uh, applied, uh, was accepted after a couple of applications. First office of assignment after you know following new agents training at Quantico was Miami. So um, I was working narcotics on South Beach, which was an amazing uh, experience. Working back then, uh, ecstasy was like the new thing. Oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah. So uh, working the clubs on South Beach, interdicting ecstasy. When the first plane hit, uh, I was actually on South Beach play, paying a uh, confidential informant the morning that the uh, the planes hit the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. And so everything changed. Spent the rest of, of that year, obviously, working the uh, what we called Pent Bomb. The Bureau names its major cases. So that was the Pentagon Twin Towers bombing is, the, is how they, just like Oak, Oak Bomb was the name of the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The Pent Bomb investigation changed everything for the Bureau, of course, and, and the American people. But I got involved in the national security side of the House, went to headquarters for uh, actually four years, trying to get back home to Virginia. Thought I wanted to live in Virginia, and once I got up there, I realized that I didn't want to be there anymore. Took a transfer back to South Carolina, where I spent probably almost almost 14 years served as the principal firearms instructor which is sort of the lead instructor for all uh, our firearms and tactics i was on the swat team down there and then towards the end of my career went back up to dc was on the attorney general's protection detail when bill barr was the attorney general that was an amazing experience and then had the opportunity to go to quantico for my last several years i was the tactical training unit chief 
So I ran all the tactical training for the FBI, which included our active shooter response training uh, nationally. And then, of course, our state, local, federal police officers around the country, we would go out and do training for them. That experience led me to want to stay in helping, you know, do something beyond my retirement. So just so you understand, the FBI, federal law enforcement, when you're in, it's a a job category called 1811. And uh, in that category, you can retire at 50 years old, so long as you have at least 20 years of service. When I turned 50, I had a little over 22 years of service and had not planned on retiring at 50 until the defund the police stuff started happening you know post george floyd really had a shift in law enforcement that was deeply concerning to me and and i've got a bunch of law enforcement family members and just saw that it was maybe time to go so i had the opportunity to retire started a consulting company with several other friends uh, from the tactical section of the fbi and and then had this opportunity to come to delta which you know, this company is incredible, basically training civilians in how to protect themselves. And, and that firsthand experience working with law enforcement on the streets all around the country convinced me of that need and the legitimacy of, you know, things have changed. Law enforcement is now, the average response time has doubled in the last three years. So people are on their own for longer than they used to be. And the bottom line is they have to know what to do, at least until the police get there. Wow, it's actually doubled Yeah, in the last yeah. how many years? So last three years. So last in 2019, wow. just to put it in perspective, 2019, the summer of 2019, the average response time in New York City, when you called 911, it was eight and a half minutes before the first police officer on average got there. Fast forward three years and the response time is 12 and a half minutes. So 50% increase, and that's in New York. There are places in this country where it's, it's far beyond that, right? That's the national mm-hmm. average is a 50% increase. There are some areas where the police might not show up for hours. And, you know, even if it's a couple of minutes, even if it's much shorter than that, you're still on your own because the average violent attack is over in seven seconds. So I can't emphasize enough the need for people to understand they must become somewhat of a stakeholder in their own security, their really their own survival. Wow, seven seconds. And I had had the privilege of doing an emergency first aid fundamentals class with Michael Martin, who was talking about medical emergencies, whether it be a gunshot wound or a car accident, that it only takes, like what, three to five minutes to completely bleed out if you have a severe bleed, really bad injury. And so if the police arrival time is, you're looking at minimum seven minutes at the very best, and that's if you're maybe in a more populated area, and then you get further out, or I'm not sure how ambulance response times uh, compare to that, but I'm guessing it can't be too much better. Well, so, yeah, you said a couple of important things there, right? So you can bleed bleed the death even quicker than that. You get to the point of no return with a major arterial bleed, right, where you're just pumping blood out of your body. And of course, if there's multiple major bleeds, it can happen faster than that. But generally, so two or three minutes at most, and then you start getting to the point of diminishing returns. Now, ambulance response time is one thing. Police response time is another thing. Let me put this in context. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to ride with um, a rescue squad in Detroit 
when I was on the SWAT team doing my medical training refresher, I was paired up with this ambulance crew middle of the night on a weekend, and our first four dispatches were for shootings. So this rescue squad, you know, started for the general area of the shooting. We got to within about a half a mile of where the shooting was reported, and we stopped on the side of the road. And of course, we're idling there and idling there. We idled there for probably 10 or 15 minutes. And as a former policeman, I'm wondering, what the heck are we doing? And then we marked in service and drove away. We never did go to the scene. So I, I leaned in and I said, hey, what are, you know, what are we doing? And they said, well, the police never marked on scene. So for those of you that, that might not be aware, that the first rule of emergency response is, is the scene safe, right? That's the, for the first thing that, that mm-hmm. any first responder is supposed to ask. And these EMTs, they're not armored. They don't, they don't have any weapons. So they're waiting for the police to get there and say, yeah, this is a a safe scene. Of course, these are reported gunshots, so they're not going anywhere near it. The police never did mark on scene, and their philosophy was, you know, this is the rescue squad people that I was talking to who were 20-something-year-old kids making $18 to $25 an hour. And they said, you know, our philosophy is the person is either bled to death or taking themselves to the hospital. In either case, there's nothing they can do. And again, the police weren't there within 20 to 30 minutes. The rescue squad never even went to the scene. And that happened four times in a row, and that was just an average night. So again, understand that, yes, the good guys are coming, but you're gonna be on your own. You gotta know what to do. And if you could guesstimate percentage-wise, how many Americans actually are prepared to manage that, what, what would you say that, that number is for any sort of emergency situation like that? I, I mean, you know, I would, be, I would be shocked if it was more than, honestly, 5 to 10% oh, wow. to really know what they're doing. And, and I'll, let me put that in context. So I told you I was, you know, trained FBI agents, trained police officers, and, and the vast majority of law enforcement first responders really don't know what to do medically. Most of us got this first responder training, the ABCs, right? Airway, breathing, circulation. Well, that goes out the window when you are dealing with massive hemorrhage. And mm-hmm. most law enforcement officers just don't know that. They're not equipped. They may now have moved towards a little bit better training in the stop the bleed stuff. And you're starting to, which I'm really encouraged about. Schools are providing this, you know, control the bleed kits and the EFAF stuff that we're doing here at Delta is is really important. But I would guesstimate that the vast majority of your average citizen has no concept whatsoever. And it's sad, but it's true. And And so that's another reason why I'm so passionate about being here is trying to spread that information uh, and it starts with acceptance and understanding of what's happened and what is happening and, and what you need to do. Absolutely. And that's a perfect segue into, you said, ex- acceptance. And something that I find in my line of work are just when talking to people about self-defense, about emergency preparedness in general, is this common idea of it won't happen to me or people who are in denial that it could happen to them because it hasn't right it's it's just this far off thing that happens in the news it happens to other people but you know oh i i'm i'm fine or i live in a nice area so what would you have to say to those types of people or what is the reality 
and the actual likelihood of the average American citizen being a victim of a violent crime? Well, a lot of that depends on who you are, where you live, right? Socioeconomics has a huge role. Uh, where you live has a huge role. Who you are surrounded by has a huge role. Um, so you have to factor all that into it. It's still, a, you know, for the average American, a very unlikely event that you'll be the victim of a violent crime. However, I always talk about low probability, ultra high consequence things. And we talk about mindset, situational awareness. You hear this all the time. Really what it is, we're never going to stop violent crime. It's never going to happen in, in human. It's just, yeah, it's just bad, who we are, bad right? Bad guys don't follow the laws, right? Exactly. Now, the name of the game, though, is don't be the victim, right? If you're the one who's paying attention, if you're the one who is taking precautions and, and cognizant of who's around you and what's going on and paying attention to those things that would make you uh, more likely to be targeted for victimization and you take steps to make yourself a harder target, take steps to make yourself appear much less likely to be an easy mark or an easy victim, then you're exponentially less likely to be targeted. Now, that's not a surefire thing, right? But it's almost like trying to prevent your home from being broken into. If you live in a, in a, in a big neighborhood, there are 100 houses. Generally, the criminals are looking for the easiest way in with the highest return, with, with little resistance and little chance of getting caught. If your house is well-lighted with the vegetation cut back, has a dog, is, is maybe an alarm system, security cameras, all that tends to make your house less attractive. And five doors down, you've got a house that, you know, the lights are off all the time. Maybe it doesn't even look like maybe anybody's in there most of the time. There's very little attention to detail paid. I would say it's a much more likely and easier target. And so what I'm trying to say is, as a person, you want to be that person who is not the easy mark, who's not going to be taken advantage of. It's by no means foolproof, but it's it's definitely going to increase your odds of achieving a positive outcome or not being victimized in the first place. Absolutely, especially with homes. I believe it was FBI data that said the vast majority of home break-ins are during the day mm-hmm. and through the front door. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I'll tell you, you know, anecdotally, um, so I was I told you I was a police officer and, as a, and a canine handler and, and responded to who knows how many home invasions or burglaries or whatever. And Fairfax County is a very affluent section of the country. Lots of lots of alarm systems, lots of nice homes. Worked plenty of break-ins in those areas. Never worked a single one that had a dog in the house. Not one. Now, wow. again, that's not definitive, but it's pretty persuasive uh, evidence, or at least to me, there is no better deterrent than a dog loose in the house. And a dog of really any size, just a noisemaker. Because that's what people want, you know, the, the criminal is looking to avoid, unless it's a home invasion, right? And that's a wholly different crime. But a burglary, the person's looking to get in and get out undetected. And a dog who's making a lot of noise is, is going to really hamper that. Yeah, I didn't think about it that way, that even the small dogs, yeah. if they're not necessarily afraid of getting injured, it's more just the, the attention grabber that a dog exactly can right. make, right? The noise. 
And I guess for anyone listening who doesn't know, right, that's the difference between a burglary is is forced entry, but the resident's not home, correct? It doesn't even necessarily have to be forced entry, and the, and the statutes vary by state and by county, and, and, mm-hmm. and but it's basically a burglary generally is when someone, I'll say, breaks in or enters the house uninvited with nefarious purposes to usually to take something right Mm -hmm. so when i was a policeman you'd have a burglary where somebody would break in and steal something right then you would have a much more high priority crime which would be a burglary of an occupied dwelling now that's when someone is broken in and the homeowner's home and it's called so we call a burgock or burglary of occupied dwelling you'd have the police running lights and sirens to get there because of course you have a potential human victim inside it could be a home invasion that sort of thing so yeah burglary a robbery is when someone comes up to another person and takes something through either literal force like hits you or stabs you threatens to do that or just intimidates you just come up and say give me your money or i'll I'll beat the crap out of you that would be a robbery that makes sense. And that's just to help you guys distinguish the difference between them. And I believe when it came to theft, I was looking at all these government stats the other night. It was like 99% of people will be the victim of theft in their lifetime, which to me makes sense. I've definitely had I've had something stolen from me in my lifetime. So. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like even when you're a little kid and someone takes your eraser out of your desk, Right. Mm-hmm. Technically, that's theft. Right. So it. it, it <laughs> Very low so yeah, risk theft. Well, yeah. It's it statistics and and semantics mean something, right? They say, yes. oh, the homicide rate is really high. Well, yeah, homicide is when one person kills another person. Murder is when they do that feloniously. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you can you can have all sorts of different definitions and skew yeah. the data one way or the other. And w- would you say that? the media uses those terms to be a little bit tricky and perhaps persuade people because they know the public isn't going to know the difference in that wording um not just the media i mean it's politicians it's it's i mean quite candidly police chiefs and sheriffs and town councils will uh, this is no secret but intentionally subdue reporting right so it's one thing to report like a larceny is a a theft but if i break into the house and take it that could be a burglary but if it's reported as a larceny it's a much lower crime just like rape versus you know they could define it it's all in the words and the definitions right and Mm -hmm. and uh towns and localities are very very cognizant of the crime data and the reporting that goes on and politicians definitely don't want to be painted in this hey, this is out of control, nobody wants to live here, property values go down, it's hard to attract business. So there's all sorts of considerations that go into crime reporting. I never thought of it in terms of the economic outcome of wanting to report it a certain way Mm -hmm. because if it's reported another way, then like you said, now it's out in the news and it's affecting the, the property values and the businesses. Think about it this way, right? So... Let's say you have graffiti on mm-hmm. a, at a bus stop. So that's a fairly low-level crime. All right, so it could be reported one way. Now let's say it's MS-13 graffiti, gang-related graffiti or gang-related tagging. Depending on how that's recorded and reported, that's a whole different narrative, right? Oh, yeah. it's just kids with spray paint. Or no, this is a, a international criminal gang that's known for violence, 
in our area. So yeah, a lot of it is semantics. A lot of it's, you have to take with a huge grain of salt. And also remember this, like sexual assaults, for example, I would guesstimate that the vast majority of sexual assaults never even get reported. Because think about how, how personal and how traumatizing that is for the victim to go through that. And then they basically have to go all through it all again when they report it. And, you know, there's the, the examinations and possible criminal investigation, sometimes recriminations. So there we know that a huge percentage of sexual assaults never even get reported. So the stats are one thing, but you always have to be very skeptical of the numbers. And interesting you bring that up. I, I guess I've never, I've never spoken about this publicly ever, but I do think it needs to be said that I, I've been through that process. It's horrible. As you said, it's repeating the same story dozens of times to this investigator and this investigator, and it really is, it really is quite traumatic. And, and especially in those situations, there's not a lot of evidence. So I even had, had police officers in my situation, I won't go um, down the rabbit hole right now, but they said, yeah, it's hard to prove anything. You basically have, you know, not much luck in criminal court. And one thing I found out later was they never told me about civil court. I was never told that that was an option. And they did say you would have a better chance trying to get some justice with your school board because mm-hmm. the school can hold a, a trial mm-hmm. of sorts. And it was a school in Illinois that I was not at for very long. And, I mean, private investigators, private investigators who interviewed me, every single person involved, every witness who then found this person, they couldn't say guilty because it was a, a school trial, but their terminology was they found this person responsible. Mm-hmm. They said, yes, everything that we've collected, and again, professionals, third-party professionals is what they do for a living. School board decided to not hold that student responsible. And I then later found out that this was fairly common at this school for people, mostly women, who pursued these cases within the school, that they would just get brushed away. And I found that it was because if the school did hold that student responsible, and even if it was just whether they expelled them or just suspended them, they then had to report those numbers as sexual assaults that happened on campus. And when that happened, right, every single parent that comes to an orientation or a perspective, you know, do I want to send my kid here, then they have to put that in those numbers. So because that that board of people making that decision was people who were invested in the, the university and reliant on the money coming into that university, I then realized, oh, these people don't actually care about upholding any sort of justice. They just want to keep the name of the school clear. Yeah, It I, was really an eye-opening experience and like I said, traumatic, but glad I went through it just to to see what it looks like because, as you said, it's it's not perfect by any means. Well, I you know obviously I'm I'm really sorry that you had to go through that and 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 there as you know there's so many young women that have and and just young people that are victimized. You know I got into law enforcement because I always, I grew up hating bullies. I hated people who, who use their power over somebody else. And, you know, that is the ultimate victimization is to force 
your will on somebody else, especially in a sexual way. And it's just so dehumanizing, as you know. But I really applaud you for coming forward and attempting to get some type of satisfaction out of that. And even more so for what you've done since then, refusing to be a victim again. You've found training and a way to ensure that, you know, you're a a pretty small person. uh, (laughs) And and it's scary when you go through life. There are, you know, as well as anybody, there there are monsters out there. There are predators out there who are constantly looking to victimize people. And that's why I'm here. That's why you're here is we believe that the only way really to ensure that you don't become a victim again is to get yourself the, the training, the awareness, and the ability to defend yourself in a meaningful way. The, the reality is there, there are books out there, there's training out there, you can go through all the jujitsu and all the combatives you want, but I mean, you're what, 110 pounds maybe? And if, if somebody my size, and I'm, I know we're on a podcast, but you know, 6'2", 235 pounds, there are weight classes in every combative sports for a reason, right? There's a oh, yeah. huge reason for that. And sometimes, honestly, a firearm is the only thing that really would stand between you and being a victim and not trying to be this big gun person. It should absolutely be the last resort. But sometimes that's all that, that would do it, right? I mean, a bat or a golf club, pepper spray, it could be effective, but when, when your life's on the line, you better have something that you know is going to, to work and you better know how to use it effectively. Now, also responsibly, right? Because oh, yeah, you shoot exactly. and that bullet's going into something or someone and you, you better be accurate and you better be justified. Um, so it's a whole dis- mm-hmm. discussion there. But what I was trying to say is I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing, uh, for, and not just for yourself, of course, but all the people you're helping. Oh, well, thank you. And speaking of that, when you said, right, it is your last resort, you are using a firearm to stop a threat, and you're responsible for every bullet that comes out of that firearm. You had brought up a really interesting statistic the other day that had to do with police officers mm-hmm. using defensive force in instances, right, seven to ten feet. Yeah. So the, the and so we, how often those shots miss? That's right. So the FBI uh, has basically records or studies law enforcement involved shootings. So police officer, sheriff's deputy, FBI agent, tribal policeman doesn't matter. State trooper, all of them. So American law enforcement officer is involved in some sort of a deadly force scenario, right? So the officer has to use their weapon. The average law enforcement shooting where the officer and the and the perpetrator is about 7 to 10 feet, so pretty close range, some level of training. And on average, and this yearly study has gone back almost 80 years now, on average, the, the law enforcement officer will miss 70 to 80% of those shots that they take. So they take 10 shots, seven or eight of those bullets are going into something or someone other than their intended target. Now that's a policeman, that's a law enforcement officer. So when I talk to civilians about this, I would argue that there are civilians out there that are really, really, really well-trained and really good, but let's say they're the really competitive shooter. It's really hard to hit someone, right? It's very different 
from shooting a piece of paper that's hanging there. So that's not I would, moving. That's not moving. Yeah. That's not right. So my point is that pretty high probability that at least one of those rounds, one of those bullets is going into something or someone other than their intended target. And unlike a policeman or unlike a law enforcement officer who probably has some kind of civil protection, legal protection, because they're on duty, they're authorized by the state or by their county to do the job and enforce the law, a civilian does not have that backstop. A civilian has no civil authority, has no civil immunity from prosecution. Uh, now, again, that immunity or that limited immunity only applies if, the, if it's a justified shooting and all that sort of stuff on the, on the part of the policeman. But a civilian never has that, right? The civilian might have the right, of course, to defend themselves. And if, it's a, if it is judged a scenario by the criminal or the civil court that that civilian had to defend themselves and that they used a reasonable amount of force to do so, then that's justifiable shooting or justifiable use of force. Now, the reasonable standard, I would be very worried going into any court in today's society and looking for a reasonable jury because who knows what that is, right? But that's the standard. Citizens, what I'm trying to say is private citizens have none of that. They don't have that protection. And their homeowner's insurance or their umbrella policy, none of that's going to cover them. No. A lot of people think it will. It will not. Even if someone broke into your house and you defended yourself with a gun or with a knife or a bat or anything, your homeowner's insurance isn't going to cover you. It specifically won't. An umbrella policy won't. You have to have dedicated self-defense liability insurance of some type. Absolutely. And I tell this to people all the time that you can prepare for what might happen, but you also have to be preparing for the aftermath and the yeah, consequences right. because it is a long process or it can be a very long process and it can be a very expensive process. I mean, that's why I'm a USCCA member. I preach this to people all the time. And then part of that too is also knowing that you're doing the right things right. and having the proper education and training. We've talked a lot about mental decisions and thinking through these scenarios because if you make a bad choice, if you're not careful about what's behind and around your intended target, you could find yourself in a lot of trouble if you don't do the right thing. So training and education, but also preparing for that aftermath. And speaking of training, we were talking a little bit earlier how prepared is the general population for any sort of emergency, but specifically for people who conceal carry, who have weapons in the home for self-defense. I mean, just personally, based off my own observations, I would say probably at least half, if not 75% of people are definitely not training enough. Oh, with their firearms, yeah. <laughs> I would. So, it's it's definitely the majority. I would, I would say probably would, closer to that seventy five percent. I would say it's probably way higher. Than you think that. more? Yeah, I would say probably ninety five percent of gun owners in America are nowhere near as proficient as they believe they are. To be honest, I had the opportunity to travel to all fifty states with the FBI, training our police officers, and I love them to death. But I think. Every officer out there would agree that most police, most law enforcement officers and agencies are greatly underfunded and have nowhere near the opportunity to train 
as much as they probably should. Most of that comes down to economics, right? So departments are underfunded. Now departments are understaffed. So many, many agencies are at what they call minimal staffing. They can't let their officers go to training. They have to put them on the street. And even when they do get a training, it's usually minimal. There's most agencies out there that, that I was able to train with, their version of training is a 25 to 50 round qualification course, which is not training. So you go out and you shoot your, you know, the police qual. And that's it. That's all they get for the year. One time, sometimes two or three times a year. But shooting a qualification course is not training. That is simply a qualification that says, yes, you are minimally proficient with that weapon. And my observation was that the vast majority of the officers that we had the opportunity to train with really could have used a lot more training. They just don't get the opportunity. They don't have the funding. Most officers don't make a great amount of money anyway certainly not relative to the risk that they take and they put themselves in. So uh, that leads to undertrained, underfunded officers out there who are doing the best they can. The, the police or the law enforcement are generally training a lot more than the civilian, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's I don't know how many gun owners are out there, but there's a lot. hundreds of millions of guns in the United States. I would guesstimate the vast majority of which probably haven't even been to the range this year once. Most people buy the gun, they'll shoot it once or twice, they'll put it in the drawer or they'll put it in their safe, and then it's this imaginary insurance policy that <laughs> I'll grab it in case something happens. They, they wouldn't have a clue what to do with it, or maybe an inkling of what to do, but really not mentally prepared. The gun itself is certainly not a, an insurance against anything. It's good to have, but you have to have that mental preparation, that planning, that commitment to what you're going to do. And more importantly, know when and why you are legally able to do that. Because the TV and the movies romanticize stuff and people have this fantasy about what it's going to be like. Oh, 100%. I can assure you, no one who's been in a shooting that is of sound mind would say that that was a pleasant experience. Oh, heck no. And, And I tell people that the mental and the physical have to be in place for the legal to even happen because the mental if you if you mess that up that means you didn't make a decision you froze you did something completely wrong you didn't understand your rights or what constituted justified use of lethal force and then the physical also ties into that decision making by say if you mess up the physical that means uh you didn't win that gunfight pal your lawyer can't help you now either well yeah and then you know it it starts long before the, the the incident itself right so now with social media you know there are people out there that i just scratched my head you know the people will write i wish that guy would have broken into my house i would have smoked him or if if someone dares to kick in my front door i i can't wait i'll kill him or whatever well all that's on social media forever and if there is an incident at your house and you're involved in the very first thing the prosecuting attorney is going to do is do a background on you and it's a bad feeling when the when the attorney who is prosecuting you and you're saying, you know, I was in fear for my life and this is a last resort. And they put up a, a banner from your Facebook page from five years ago that says, isn't it true? You wrote that I, I wish this guy would try. I wish somebody would give it a shot because they'll, I mean, believe me, I've seen it happen again and again and again. So my job, our job uh, is to educate and to help people really understand how serious this business is 
what a terrible life-changing thing that any type of use of force is, right? You have any type of what I call kinetic interaction with another human being, you're almost certainly going to get sued, very likely going to go through the criminal process. It's going to alter your life forever. My advice is avoid at almost all costs, not at any cost, right? There are some times where, depending on the situation, it's absolutely worth standing your ground and defending your five-month-old child or there's no other alternative, then you have to be prepared to use whatever force is necessary to, to guarantee the safety of yourself and the people you care about. I need you to think of 12 people in your life who disagree with you on almost everything or who you think are just downright nutso. Now, imagine that all of those people are holding the fate of your future in their hands. Talk about spooky season. All of those people consider themselves to be reasonable persons. You might disagree, but unfortunately, that's not up to you. Just like Rob said, private citizens do not have the same protections that law enforcement does. So it is crucial to have a plan in place to protect yourself and your family, both legally and financially, should you ever find yourself in a self-defense incident. And that is exactly what a USCCA membership provides. Not only are you getting access to top-of-the-line training and education through their Protector Academy, but you also become an insured on a self-defense liability policy. Their critical response team is on call 24-7 to be there when you need them. I am thrilled to share that I have my own special link in the show notes where you will get a free bonus gift when you become a member today. I can't tell you what it is because it changes all the time, but I can promise it's something awesome that you are going to love. I personally would never even consider carrying or simply owning a firearm without something like USCCA in place. And I'm telling you, USCCA is the best of the best. And the former FBI agent sitting next to me agrees. So if you don't take my word, take his. So click that link in the show notes for more information and to level up your protection plan today. Seriously, do not put this off for the same reason we own firearms. It is so much better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. I tell people all the time, I served on protection details had a great opportunity to train, some of the best training in the world. The TV would have you believe that we're shooting all the time and doing all sorts of things. Never once in all the years that I protected some of the most at-risk individuals in the world did I have to draw my weapon. If I ever had to draw my weapon, certainly if I ever had to fire my weapon, our mission had failed by definition. We hadn't, we hadn't anticipated, we hadn't seen, we hadn't avoided. Our job was to get that principle in and out of whatever the visit was or the movement was safely. If we had failed to recognize the threat early, that's it, a failure on us. Yes, the weapons training and all that is there to make sure we can continue to protect that principle. But really, if we had to use force, we had failed in our initial mission. And I'm sure that's not something that many people would, would think. Like you right. said, with the movie and TV depictions of gunfights in the street and bullets flying left and right, it's Sure, that's great entertainment. It's accurate. great for a, it'd be a boring video game, right? No one's going to play Call of Duty 
uh, where you're just driving away from everything. So <laughs> Exactly. So two questions. First one, when we're talking about how potentially upwards of 95% of gun owners aren't sufficiently trained, just being honest, that doesn't make us sound very good, right? If we're trying mm-hmm. to preach to especially people who might be anti-Second Amendment or anti-gun that this is an important right to protect and that we do have a right to bear arms. And I don't think that you should have to prove that your SEAL level training or this, you know, super high level, you don't have to be like a military law enforcement. Absolutely not. But knowing and just being honest that the community in general is pretty under-trained, how do we still then make an intelligent argument for our Second Amendment rights. So let me let me be clear. The Second Amendment guarantees the right of the American citizen to own a firearm, right? Like, yep. it doesn't say that you can own a firearm with proper training. It doesn't say that you have to be at a certain level of proficiency. It simply says that you have the, the right to keep and bear arms. Now, I would argue that we all live in a society, unless you're like somewhere way off the grid, right? So living with other people we have some level of responsibility to our fellow citizens and to our families. A reasonable person with that tool would want to get proficiently trained, would want to be responsible so that they're not going to hurt themselves, they're not going to hurt their loved ones, and they're not going to unjustifiably and unnecessarily hurt anyone else. This gun is a tool that, again, immediately makes you equal to me in terms of being able to protect yourself, right? Yeah. If you don't know how to use it, it's not much <laughs> use to you. If you use it irresponsibly and hurt somebody else, then now you have you ruined your life and ruined someone else's life. So let me be very clear. Second Amendment makes no mention of training and no responsibility there. It's not qualified in any regard. The Second Amendment guarantees your right to keep and bear a firearm. Our organization believes that, hey, as a, as a reasonable, rational, responsible person, you would want to get training to make yourself much less likely, one, to have to use it. That's the last yeah. line of defense. And it's a great line of defense, but uh, I, I tell people all the time, and this kind of takes them aback, but think about it. You should never go into an area armed that you wouldn't go unarmed. Okay, oh, so I, I agreed. Yeah. Right. So like if it's a shady area and you feel like, you know what, if I didn't have my gun, I'd never go in there. But since I have my gun, I'm going to go in there. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> terrible. Right. <laughs> so if you see something, just drive away. That gun is there in case everything else fails and there's nothing else for it. And you have to use it to ensure that you get to continue and or that your loved one does. That is why you have the gun. It's not like an access card to more dangerous areas. Now, for the military, sure, right? Or for law enforcement, sure. They go in there because of their training. They have to go in there. But as a private citizen, you're a fool to do that. Just from a purely self-preservation standpoint, if you have a gun and you use it and you can't show that you've had any level of training, any level of proficiency, you're going to be much less likely to achieve a positive outcome in court than you would be if you could demonstrate, you know what, I did this training. I was able to demonstrate that I have some level of proficiency. I am a responsible person. You're, again, going to be in front of a jury, and they're going to be looking at, well, what did you do to prepare yourself? Are you just some person who has never used that before and just pulls it out and starts blasting? Well, that's not very reasonable. So 
I just wanted to make that distinction because people make the fallacy, well, you were, you were required to get training. Absolutely not. The, the Constitution does not say that. And I'll support your right to keep and bear an arm because I'm an absolute believer in the Constitution. I want to offer people solid, fundamental training on not only how to use the firearm, more importantly, when to, when not to, how to avoid that's the most important thing because we want we want people to go on with their lives. Most people just want to go on with their lives. Exactly. And that when to use force is so critical and is something that I my just day-to-day life find that people have a lot of misconceptions Absolutely. about or they yeah. or they fall into the trap well, well legally I can, right? You're going to be judged by a jury of your peers and it, some things fall into that category of just because you can doesn't mean you should and especially if there is a less lethal option if there's an option to de-escalate or get out of there walk away yeah yeah if you're found at all to be contributorily negligent right so if if your actions have instigator yeah if if you continued the argument if you have provoked if there's so many areas now where if any little bit of your actions contributed to this overall incident, then you don't have a legal leg to stand on. So, you know, again, I I, I tell people, is it emasculating to walk away from a fight? Sure, it is. No one wants to back down from a bully. (laughs) But you know what? I'd rather go home to my family and enjoy freedom and all that rather than try to prove a point and then have to spend the next several years in court or whatever. If my life is, is suddenly threatened and there's nothing else for it, then absolutely I'm going to react and, and because I've made that decision. And that's something people don't think about. And I'm glad you brought up the social media thing as well because even just liking a post, commenting on something, especially in the gun community, I've seen I've seen a lot of those posts, right? Like, well, if, if that was me or I can't wait for the day this. And yeah, exactly. You absolutely like that will get brought up in court. Oh, and 100%. I mean, here in the state of Wisconsin, goodness, we all know the Kenosha incident, Kyle Rittenhouse, and they were bringing up tweets in court about right. about well, like four doors and promiscuous yeah. women. And yeah. so, right. yeah. I mean, I, it kind of became a, a meme on the internet, but it goes to show that anything and everything that you've ever put out there. Right can be brought up and can be used well, against you. Not only you. can, but will. Yeah, will. Exactly. Right. Uh, especially in this digital age. And I'm sure uh, as a F- former FBI, you probably know, I mean, you can delete stuff, but nothing's ever Oh, nothing's really ever. Deleted. Yeah, once it's on the internet or has been on the internet, it's absolutely recoverable for sure. So oh, this is a good question then. So as FBI, would they be able to access deleted items with a warrant or... Oh, sure. Yeah. And sometimes they don't even need a warrant. Yeah. If if you've put it out into the internet space, (laughs) there's no expectation of of privacy, right? It's almost like when you put your garbage out. Even if you've deleted it. Oh, yeah. Even if you've deleted it, it was out there and they can recover it. Now, they'll go get a warrant if they can. I mean, they're always going to do the most defensible or, I guess, challenge-proof way of getting stuff because if they have time to go get a warrant or if they're able to do it, sure, they go get it. But sometimes they don't need the judge's permission because it's out there. Now, of course, there's the famous case like with the Apple iPhones that are very hard to crack or whatever, and I'm certainly not a cyber person, but 
if the evidence is on that phone and there is some expectation of privacy with your personal information, if there is an expectation of privacy, then generally you would have to go get a warrant, right? You, you go into the court and you try and convince a judge that it's in, in the interest of society and it's in the interest of public safety or whatever the case is, that judge literally then decides, that's his, the title of his job is to judge things, he or she decides, yeah, you know what, there's a compelling case here, I'm going to order uh, AT&T to comply and provide all of the call information, or I'm going to order Apple to unlock that computer. But your ask was, if it was out there on the internet, there is no expectation of privacy. Wow. And people with a private page or it's friends and family only. And I think yeah. that maybe gives a false sense of security of it being private, correct? Now, in that case, there is some uh, supposition of privacy, right? So okay. if it's restricted, yeah, then, then they may be compelled to get a warrant. There's so many different considerations there. I'm not that familiar. But it comes down to reasonability, right? Was, was there a reasonable expectation of privacy? If so, then you're probably going to have to get a warrant to compel whatever entity is holding that information to provide it. That is so interesting. And we've talked about a lot of different things, whether it be burglaries or just random violent acts of crime on the street or, goodness, if you were in Miami, gang violence. You said international gang violence. Yeah, Miami's an international city. There's all kinds of shenanigans going on down there. Well, it's where Mr. Worldwide lives, right? Who's that? Pitbull. Oh yeah, okay. Is <laughs> it not not my thing? But I, I've heard. I think I'm, I've heard I'm, some of his stuff. I'm sure he's great. Mr. Three Hundred Five. Mr. No, Th- oh Mr. yeah, I do know that's the area code because I live down there. <laughs> Mr. Three Hundred Five turned Mr. Worldwide. Yeah, I'm sure he's uh, never heard of me either. I don't think that Pitbull is part of any international. No, gangs. I think he probably has enough money. He can do whatever he wants. No, he's living the dream. So Miami, very different type of crime. Well, I mean, Florida in general has a lot of crazy stuff. Yeah, well, Florida's got a lot of crazy uh, people. So anytime you have a lot of people, especially (laughs) an area like Florida is a mixing bowl, right? So people come from literally all over the planet. And unfortunately, it's been my experience that when you have so many people from so many different cultures and so many different experiences, the unfortunate thing is that it doesn't generally tend to rise to the highest. It devolves to the lowest common denominator. In these mixing bowl areas, I mean, ideally it'd be great if, if all these different cultures and people and you know came together and celebrated and lifted up. That doesn't tend to be the reality. I mean, it's just a fact of life. So anytime you have these massive culture clashes, really, every society on the planet has its virtues and has wonderful people. Problem is they don't understand each other. And sometimes they think one is superior to the other or whatever it is, they don't blend well. And that, you know, Mm. human nature is that we like to be around people that are like us and we tend to avoid people who aren't. And that's when, you know, these conflicts happen. Yeah, I've been in the Miami area and it definitely is more of a mixing bowl than than here in the Midwest. Oh, for Um, sure. And where I was going with that question is, right, I mean, different crimes in Miami than you're going to see in Chicago versus rural Wisconsin, right? But generally, whether it be theft, whether it be sex trafficking, sexual assault, Obviously, mass shootings are a mm. hot-button topic when it comes to the news. Do you think that people fear the wrong things or disproportionately 
fear the wrong things based on what they see on the news. And then because of that, they're not properly preparing for the things that are actually more applicable to them. Oh, yeah, of course. So the mass shootings or the active shooter attacks are still a really low frequency event. But again, ultra high consequence, right? And Mm -hmm. it's what gets on the news. Never, ever forget that all news channels are looking for eyeballs because they sell advertising. Every station in the country is in business to make money. The way they make money is selling advertising. And the way they get to sell advertising is the number of people looking. And if they have a story that has some salacious information, especially if it has video, you know, there's this old adage that if it bleeds, it leads, right? If you can show, oh my God, look at all these shot up people or whatever it is, the reality is if you have a mass shooting today in the United States, two or three or more people, unless it's a pretty high body count, like 10 or 15 people are killed, or unless there's some video that would show the attacker or show Mm -hmm. some people literally almost getting killed. They generally won't show the graphic violence, but what they love to do is tease it with warning, disturbing video. Oh, no one's turning that off. But if there's no video and if it's not a high body count, that story's not even going to be in the news cycle 24 hours later. It's not going to cap. No, of course not. Uh, Now, Columbine, right? Columbine happened in 1999, right as the 24-hour news cycle started happening. And there was video of everything, right? Helicopters circling. Not like we have today, because nobody had cell phones recording. But Virginia Tech, super high body count. There was lots of cell phone video that got played over and over and over again. And anymore, these shootings, everyone starts recording on their phones, because they can sell that to the news stations because it gets eyeballs. It's all about eyeballs. And it's sad, but it's true. But your question initially was, do people fear irrationally? And yeah, I tell people all the time, listen, you buy a gun and you prepare your house and you're so afraid of, uh, of someone breaking in like a home invasion. It's pretty unlikely, pretty unlikely, unless you're storing drugs or something in your house that you're going to have your home invaded. Now, it's a high-consequence event, and I want people to be prepared and, and protect themselves and learn how to make yourself less likely of that. But you're much more likely to have a fire in your house than oh, you yeah. are, right? But most people don't have a fire extinguisher or a fire escape ladder, that sort of thing. So there is an irrational fear of many things. Hollywood, again, dramatizes and glorifies things. Now, that's not to say this isn't happening. It is absolutely happening. There's a spike in, in violent crime across the country. Law enforcement, again, we get kind of get back to what we were talking about before. Law enforcement is slower to react. There are fewer of them. So we are moving into a very concerning time in America. Can't overemphasize the need for awareness, acceptance of what's happening, and then preparation and training to ensure yourself the, the best possible chance for a positive outcome. I I agree with all of that. And when we're talking about low probability, but high risk and being prepared, I've also noticed those news stories typically cause a spike in the gun industry. Anytime that there is a school Mm -hmm. shooting or the riots, goodness, people got freaked out and it becomes real. And that's what we were talking a little bit about earlier, right? People 
in denial that it could happen to them. But when it's in their home streets and we saw the riots, we saw buildings being lit on fire and windows smashed and people fighting in the streets. Mm -hmm. Or again, it's something like a church or a school. It's just like a response. People go, oh, I need to go buy something, protect myself. And then I think that's where they get stuck is they buy something. They buy a firearm or whatever it may be, and then that's it. Then they de- right. that's where, again, that that's false, sometimes this right. false sense of security, right? They false don't train, they don't... That's the key, is major upheavals in the country that scare people. And I applaud people for going and being proactive and taking the initiative to obtain a firearm or whatever to protect themselves and their family. Absolutely support that and, and applaud it. But that's not enough, right? I've seen people literally carrying the gun out of the gun store in a bag, almost like it's a, a dog poop bag, right? They don't <laughs> want to touch it. They're afraid of it. They put it in their trunk, and then they take it into their house, and they put it in the back of the closet and never touch it again. Well, that's not going to do you any good at all. I applaud people for doing that and, and being proactive, but they've got to take some responsibility beyond that, train themselves, You've taken that first step, but it's that false sense of, of assurance that, I, well, I've got a gun. Nothing bad could happen. Well, let's talk about that. Listen to some people who, who know what they're doing and can teach you how to hopefully spot trouble early, avoid it, things to do, things to look for. And early detection avoidance techniques are the key. And the, the gun comes into play when none of that's possible and there's nothing else for it. And you have to defend yourself, and the police aren't there yet. And then, once the police do get there, that's a whole nother story. I mean, it's still a very dangerous situation. It's an unknown. The police probably don't know who you are. The, at best, they have second or third hand information from the call taker to the dispatcher. And so, I always remind people that if it wasn't an armed conflict before the police got there, it is now because they always bring a gun, right? And mm-hmm. it's. It could be tragic. They're not there to kill people. The gun on their side is there to protect the officer and to protect the innocent. They don't want to use it, I can assure you. But people have to understand that that's also a very dangerous time is in the first few seconds uh, when the police do arrive. Mm-hmm. Very, well, ca- very chaotic. It's probably scary for them, and they want to make sure they go home to their families and they're working off limited information right and you bring up situational awareness gut feelings the only self-defense scenarios that we are guaranteed to survive are the ones that we avoid in the first place right and you'd brought up a couple amazing examples or interesting examples the other day you mentioned some scenarios where people in situations had an opportunity to escape or had seen the perpetrator coming and then doubted it or didn't move or froze because our brains want to default to normalcy just how common is that because i feel like it's well, it's human common. nature. Yeah. yeah. So that's the point is it, it's human nature for our brains to have this bias towards normalcy. Look at something and your brain will try to fit it into what you know and understand. Okay. And it's not normal for someone to, to be coming down the street trying to kill you. And it's not normal to hear gunshots at work. You know, whatever the emergent situation is, it's natural for your brain to try to categorize this as something else. All right, like this might be a drill at work, an active shooter drill, or maybe those are fireworks or whatever it is. This mob, I'm not sure what they're doing, but they probably won't hurt me. 
that's my point is that mental preparation ahead of time, understanding that bias towards normalcy, understanding the human tendency to not move, not react. You're going to freeze unless you've thought about it. And it's, it's a simple act of mental preparation and commitment and empowering yourself to take action in your own best interest, even if you're wrong. Let's say it's, oh, you know what, it was a bunch of fireworks, but you've bought yourself that extra time and you've gone outside or you've moved away. Were you wrong? Okay, you've lost nothing. But if you were incorrect and you misassessed the situation, assuming it was nothing and it was something very important, We talked before about the most critical element in any emergency is time. And if you can buy yourself even a half a second, sometimes you can buy yourself a whole lot more than that to react, do something, take proactive steps to gain time and distance. That's your friend in any type of emergency. Yeah, time and distance and action. I've been asked that many times before. Well, what happens if I freeze? That's a pretty common response. Right. And my response will be, well, that's why you train. Right. That's, that's why, why you commit to yourself ahead of time. I'm not going to freeze. We all react the same. Something happens. You get this startle and fear. You get this chemical dump. Your body, it's either fight or flight, typically. And most people who've never thought about it, never given any consideration to what they would do if they were threatened like that, will freeze. They'll be overcome by events. But those people who have considered what, what to do, they will generally recall, you know what, I thought about this. I have a plan. Commit to that plan and, and enact it. Commit to it and do something. Run out the door. Get up from your cubicle and move to the exit. We're also pack creatures. No one else is moving, so maybe I won't move. That's not a great default. The great counterpoint to that is if you do get up and you do start moving, chances are you will influence others to do that too. They're looking to see what other people are doing. That bias towards normalcy is reinforced if no one else is doing anything. Mm -hmm. So I can't overemphasize the importance of action. I'm not saying run out of every room every time you get the heebie-jeebies. I'm saying if there's something going on, everything is telling you that this is real, it's time to act right now. And I love that point of you're better off being paranoid than dead. A healthy sense of skepticism and paranoia, right? That's the whole point of the USCCA. We don't want anybody to live in fear. We don't want them to be afraid. I want you to go to bed at night confident that your house is protected because you've taken the training to do that. You've taken all the things. Your loved ones are safe. They know what to do. And then if something does happen, someone does kick in your back door, you have a plan, you have a fallback plan, and you have a means to protect yourself for as long as it takes for the police to arrive and and save the day. That's the ultimate goal, right, is let's come up with this plan. Let's come up with the training necessary to make yourself confident that you can handle a situation like that. Because most people sit there and wonder, oh, my God, what would I do? I don't know what I would do. That's a horrible feeling. You know that's a horrible feeling, right? a horrible feeling, yeah. So the, the, the whole point of this is to help people live a happy life, confident that they can protect themselves and their loved ones and pursue whatever it is that their American dream is. That's not gonna happen when you're afraid all the time. But that's where the hope lies, right? Is we had a personal discussion the other day about where the world is headed and people are concerned about so many things, whether it be violence, the economy, international affairs. There's a lot for people to worry about. And 
perhaps justifiably so, but when it comes to your own life and your own home and your own family, you do have quite a bit of control Absolutely. over what you can do. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you you know, we, we live in an amazing time, right? The food uh, safety is better than it's ever been. There's very little chance that what you buy at the store is going to be contaminated. Is it possible? Sure. Mm-hmm. But we've got the FDA doing an amazing job. You've got these, I mean, it's there's so much out there that is the the threat to our lives has been reduced and and now criminal activity threatens our safety and our security and we have an opportunity because we live in America and we have a second amendment that guarantees your right to be able to protect yourself to keep and bear arms you know there are many 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 countries that you don't have that and that's part of what makes America such an incredible place to live is you do have that right you do have the authority to protect yourself. It's not left to the government. I'm not this big anti, I work for the government, right? (laughs) I I know most of the people that work for the government are really genuinely great people that want to help. I was one of those people, but I couldn't be everywhere all the time. And I wanted my neighbors to sleep soundly and be confident that, you know what, I'm gonna go about my life and go about my business. And if something bad were to happen, I know what to do, and I have the means to do it if someone threatens me or my family in my home when all I'm doing is trying to go about my business, right? I just want to be left alone. I think that's what most law-abiding people want, just be left alone to do their thing. And when the criminal comes calling, that's when you have to be able to, again, know what to do and have the means to do so. I love that. That's really good stuff. The fact you said... A lot of people in the government are genuinely good, good people. I think mm-hmm. that's that alone is something that I think a lot of the public doesn't believe anymore, right? Yeah, they think and, they're and, all alien lizard people. One, <laughs> once again, the media, every media outlet out there, is in business to make money, and they know that this narrative. People sit in their in their basements, or they sit in their living rooms, and they watch whatever flavor of news they want to watch, and. We've gotten really, really good at giving people exactly what they're looking for. Social media channels are really great at diagnosing, oh, this guy watched a video on anti-government stuff, and well, guess what? Now you're going to get more, and it's going to reinforce that idea. Not to get into this whole psychology thing, but we're all in our own little echo chambers now, thanks to social media. The more you click on something, the more you even hover over a picture, All that data is recorded and stored forever, and these giant companies, every single day, every single thing you click on or watch or do is recorded and stored forever, so they have a more and more and more and more accurate picture of you, and that is worth a lot of money to companies. So what I'm saying is all this information out there, everything you get is tailor-delivered to you. It used to be the newspaper was just printed. Mm-hmm. And now it's like a tailor-made news story or news lineup that is delivered to you. That's why we can't understand. Like, I know my brother-in-law is a smart <laughs> person, right? I'm just making this up. But how could he possibly believe this nonsense? Doesn't he know? Well, he's getting a whole nother feed. He's getting yeah. a whole nother set of facts, as some of our politicians like to say. I use my set of facts. Like, well, okay. So... It's not that they're wrong or I'm right. It's that I'm getting a whole different spin customized for me because it keeps me looking 
and it's their opportunity to put another pair of socks or another chainsaw or another whatever it is they want to try to sell me in front of my eyes and that's super valuable so anyway and as you said it's not just newspaper anymore and i believe it was the introduction of the 24-hour news cycle that you brought up earlier Mm -hmm. that people's perception of reality and crime changed drastically and that actually today if you look at the statistics children people in general tend to be a lot safer oh no question but america now is safer yeah. than it was before but when yeah. if you were to ask a poll right. of people that question of do you think america is safer now they would say absolutely not yeah and i think that just goes to show and i'm sure like in the work that you've done you can probably attest to that yeah if you were to go back 100 150 200 years ago the average person died a much more unpleasant death than we do now. Like, that's just a fact. <laughs> Most of us today, especially at a certain socioeconomic level, can expect to die a fairly comfortable death in probably a hospital or a hospice bed, something like that. Now, of course, there are automobile accidents and there is violent crime, but on average, there are a lot more people on the planet and most of them live a much less violent life, that sort of thing. So it's all about the stats and it's all about perception and telling a story. And you just have to be a skeptical consumer of everything these days. Yeah, having really solid discernment is important. And I don't even get me started on all of the AI stuff that you can't even (laughs) you can't even believe your own eyes anymore. It, It really is a different world. Okay, and this is a little bit off-hand question, so if you want me to delete it, you can tell me. But we know that there's a lot of gaming chat rooms and people who play video games online, and there's been a lot of discourse both amongst the public and even at the the university level about video game violence and real in-person violence. And the question I wanted to ask about that is, is it true that we have FBI agents who stalk some of these chat rooms? I don't want to say stalk, but you know, place themselves or have eyes on these chat rooms where they're looking for people who maybe are a little bit antisocial and show these signs of violence? Hmm. Or is that just more of a a myth that people have created? Uh, No. So I would would say that that's a myth. It's a huge myth surrounding the reach and the, I guess, scope of not just the FBI, but the government or whatever. Oh, they're watching me. They're listening to it. <laughs> Everyone thinks you. they have a they personal do, FBI and, you know, agent. <laughs> they do. And, and I mean, there's just not enough. Now, I'm not saying that there could be computers listening or, like you say, AI constantly scanning. I really don't know. That's way outside of my experience. I can assure you that there are not FBI agents listening to everybody's phone calls or going on chat rooms or, like you say, video game meet rooms or whatever. Now, we do know that sometimes those chat rooms or those game lobbies are used to facilitate whether it's any type of like nefarious activity, right? So drug deals, child pornography swaps, counterintelligence investigate, like espionage stuff. Anytime you have any form of communication between people, that allows any level of anonymity, it's gonna be prone to and used for nefarious activities. That's just a, that's as old as time. So will the FBI go in and look at a chat room? Well, sure, if there's evidence or there's indication that criminal activity is going on there, they're not gonna sit on the Call of Duty lobby and say, 
oh, this guy has tendencies. That's not going to happen. What they might do, though, is if they're looking at somebody already, they may get a warrant to then, if they even need a warrant, view their history on a chat room or something like that. But in terms of monitoring these things for possible, that's a bunch of that's a bunch of BS. That's a bunch of baloney. Yeah. Changing topics a little bit. The Sound of Freedom movie, did you see that? I did. This summer. So because that was such a nationwide sensation, got a lot of attention, yes. made tons of money at yes, the box I'm office. So thankful that it did. Yeah. Okay, good. That was that was gonna be my question to you was when it comes to sex trafficking, the child pornography yeah. stuff, I'm glad that people are talking about it more because in my master's program, we discussed this a lot, and especially sex trafficking, just yeah. human trafficking in general. Yeah. My eyes were really open to how prevalent it is. Is that one of those things that you think people are potentially under aware of or oh. need to be more aware? Oh, is it worse it's than we think? far worse than you think. I worked child sex crimes for a very brief period of time when I was in the Bureau, I had to stop working it because you, know, you, you do these investigations, you get evidence, you go get a search warrant, and you go to this person's house to, to effect a search warrant. And you've seen what they're looking at and what they're doing and what their little disgusting fantasies are. And you have to look at that as Oh, yeah, the you got to look at it. And you got to make oh. sure it's a real person. You try to obviously tie to who this, this potential victim is. But I found myself in a really bad mental place where I'm literally planning this search warrant and I knew that I had to stop working it because I find myself going to the door to effect the search warrant, almost hoping that the person, the subject of the warrant, would come to the door with anything in their hand that would allow me to kill this person. Like I, I was so angry and so disgusted and just I knew it was not right. Like, that's not what a law enforcement officer is supposed to do, right? That, I knew that was not my job. And I knew it wasn't. My job is to affect the arrest and bring them to justice and let a jury try them and convict them on the evidence. But I knew I had to get out of that line of work when all I wanted to do was end this person. Don't even get me started on these sexual predators. Talk the ultimate victimization, an adult person victimizing a child you take me to a really dark place there. And my view of that type of person is they're unredeemable, unreclaimable. And again, I'm certainly not an expert on this psychological makeup. And I'm, I'm so glad that there are experts out there and these people that are willing to try and help. But my nature is that all I see is a child who's being victimized by an adult. And that is just that's it. There's no, <laughs> you know, I don't have time for a trial. I, I just had to get out. I stopped. That movie that I watched, The Sound of Freedom, I can't remember the agent's name, but I went and watched the movie by myself and wept like a baby watching these actors depicting the children. And then, it's, and then at the end, when they showed the actual footage of those children being rescued off that island, and they showed the agent and his wife and their beautiful family, I just was so grateful. I would love to shake that guy's hand. I mean, what a case, what an example. And, and I'm glad they made the movie. Uh, I'm glad it got so much attention. But, you know, to answer your question, people have no idea what their neighbors are up to. I can't tell you how many times we would serve a warrant in a 
really high scale neighborhood. The person that we were serving the warrant on was a very seemingly upstanding member of the community. I've arrested military flag officers. I've, I've arrested CEOs of corporations. I've arrested school teachers, principals. I've arrested other law enforcement officers. Every walk of life imaginable is susceptible to this sickness. And they're very, very good at hiding it, very good at it. So that, that sense of skepticism and caution must be maintained by parents and, and vigilance has to be constant because these predators are really good at getting what they want and what they want is access to these victims. I almost want to be surprised by that, but at the same time, I'm not that it could be, it could oh, be your anybody, neighbor. Yeah. My orthodontist. Yeah. My old orthodontist was arrested just last year. Yeah. I think they found lots of child pornography on yeah. one of his computers, and they had found messages of him trying to solicit things a, from uh, young girls, and it was a shock because this was yeah. the orthodontist. We right? had the, we had the head of person. the uh, U.S. Olympic team uh, physician. Right, who had sexually assaulted oh, at my alma mater, right, Michigan State. Right, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I had a personal, very formative experience with a sexual predator that I had no idea. I had no inkling ever. This person was sort of like the grandfather figure in my church, very active in the youth group for generations. Everybody loved this man, and he was the most kind, gentle man. And one day, I remember I was in college, so I had aged out of the youth group, gone off to college, never had the slightest suspicion that this was the case. But my father called me and said, hey, you know what, you better sit down. And so I was on the phone, and he says, they just arrested Mr. Mr. So-and-so. He admitted he had offered a, a young girl a ride home after youth group one night, and nobody thought anything of it. And instead of taking her home, took her to a park and tried yeah. something. Now, thank God she had the fortitude and the courage to resist and yelled, you know, you take me home right now. And he did. And she went in and told her mom and dad. They called the police. Oh, he, was a, he admitted it. He admitted it. And then several other girls from previous generations started coming forward. Oh, yeah. This oh, is the no. classic. It's the cla But I remember thinking how sad I was that... I never saw it, never once. It, you know, sometimes you get, oh, yeah, you know, inkling, or I thought this. This guy was th no clue whatsoever. So it really informed, on a fairly early age, me understanding that yeah, this could happen anywhere, anytime. And you really, as a parent, as a guardian of any person, I won't even say young person, any person who's at risk, because you could have a handicapped person or you could have a special needs person that could be easily victimized. And so as a caregiver, as a guardian, you have to be cognizant and on guard all the time. And with the internet, I've seen stories of predators going into oh God, yeah. kids' games and yeah. pretending to be younger children right. and then getting them onto other apps like right. Snapchat and things. Right. And Gosh, it, it's scary, but yeah. I mean, would you agree that that's probably one of the most common and pervasive issues that faces our country right now? Oh, yeah. It's terrifying that there's almost unlimited access to children. There's so many different access points to them now with, you know, these apps and these videos. And never forget that you take a picture 
on your phone or you're upload a video and unless you change the settings it's geolocated so like here i am hanging out at my house and all i got to do is get the geo data out of that picture and i know exactly where you live or exactly where that picture was taken that sort of thing so and these predators know all this right they exploit it so it's um it's a whole different world than it was even just 30 years ago and scary. Mm-hmm. And you're not the first law enforcement person to tell me that thought of rescuing a kid or being on a mission and having that feeling of I yeah. I can't do this because the the rage against oh, these predators yeah. because I had a friend in in Tucson, he was a law enforcement guy and they'd gone on a mission and rescued it was over a dozen girls. Yeah. Just an hour south of Tucson, all under the age of 14. Yeah. Said so two of them had babies yeah. from Oh yeah. Their traffickers said it it was a miracle they were all alive and he told me how it, it felt. He's like obviously I was so happy they were safe yeah. and to rescue them, but he said that rage yeah. of I want to do a lot more than just arrest this person right now. <laughs> he said yeah. that he's had to kind of remove himself and calm down on many occasions just because it's he said yeah. I My mean first, a regular uh, person can't can't fathom who would do that, but my first, my first interaction with the FBI was actually as a police officer, a brand new policeman. This is back in 1993, so before, way before the internet, way before cell phones and all that. Well, maybe cell phones, but wasn't that prevalent. But no internet, so child predators existed, of course, but they weren't able to exchange pictures electronically. So they had these cases called travelers. So these these child predators, pedophiles had this group it was a secret group that obviously and long story short the fbi had an undercover case into this individual who was coming from southern california to northern virginia he was driving across country he was going to bring in a, a huge repository of hard copy images photographs and videos of child sexual activity so i was the policeman i was in uniform i was the person who was supposed to be there to reassure the public that this is a real legitimate thing because the rest of the detectives were all plain clothes. Long story short, this guy pulls up. He had called the undercover agent the night before to say, hey, bring extra material to trade because that's what they would do. They would trade. And he says, bring extra material because I have a surprise for you. You mean they trade children? No, they would trade images, right? Oh, they would trade, trade images. pictures and okay. photos and that because there was no way to do it otherwise. But he showed up with a kid. Yeah, he had a, a little, and it ended up being a Mexican child. His family had come over the border illegally. And, of course, they hadn't recorded him missing because he was kidnapped. He was in the country illegally from Mexico. And this poor little nine-year-old boy had been in a steamer trunk in the back of this van for weeks. As weeks. He, oh, yeah, as he drove him across the country. So when they arrested this guy and pulled him out of the van and brought him into my patrol car to take to, to our headquarters for interviewing, all I wanted to do was pull the car over and destroy this person because I saw the little kid. I saw the look in, the, in his eyes when, when he was rescued, and this kid had no idea what was going on. He had just been horrifically abused. I, I do wonder whatever happened to that little child. You know, he's 30, 40 years old now. It's so sad. Gosh, well... I mean, even more reason, right? We've been talking about training and preparedness for gosh, almost two hours now. <laughs> that flew by. Uh, I might have to break this into two episodes. But 
despite the tragedy, despite all the bad things that go on in the world, back to the, I guess, the theme of this conversation, we could say is taking control of what you can control, avoiding those situations when possible and being prepared for when you can't Mm -hmm. avoid them. And something I focus on specifically is a holistic approach to self-defense. Like you said, not living in fear, but being realistic, being prepared. Uh, And for me, that also involves physical health, mental health, mindset. So if you could just give one final, what I call holistic, ballistic tip for everyone listening, what would that be? Just understand that like this is real. So I don't want people to have some you know, misguided or misinformed fantasy of, oh, I've got to be some Hollywood action hero and or that people are going to be breaking in to my house all the time. Just be cognizant that this could happen. It's, again, low probability, but that doesn't mean zero probability. And if something were to happen, what would you do? Are you able to do something? Have you thought about it at all? Do you have any means to protect yourself until the police get there? Because hope is not a really great plan. It's not a plan. I hope nothing happens. To everybody listening, I hope nothing happens to you too. I really do. But have that insurance of, you know what, if it does, I know what to do. I have a plan and I have the means to do it until the good guys can get there and get things back to normal. But it's just not living in some weird fantasy world of denial that it could never happen to me. That's just a very foolish, very naive way to go through life. And ultimately, you're still going to have that doubt at the back of your mind, that sense of unease. I want people to be very confident, very at peace that, you know what, I've thought about it, thought through all the possibilities. I do have a plan and I do have a means to protect myself and my loved ones. Amazing. Right. Denial is a river in Egypt. And (laughs) here we believe in taking responsibility for your life and your family, controlling what you can control. I, I have no words. I cannot thank you enough for taking your time to have this conversation with me and sit down and provide a wealth of knowledge. I know I could ask you a hundred more questions and talk for five more hours, but it really has been a pleasure. And thank you so, so much, Rob. This is going to be very valuable for everyone listening. And I hope everyone listening will feel empowered and a little bit more informed and that they feel that they can make solid choices rooted in information and facts moving forward. Oh, I'm happy to do it, and uh, good luck with your podcast and anything I can do to help. Obviously, we're on the same team here, so look forward to seeing your your audience grow and continuing to spread the, the important message of self-reliance and safety and security. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed this interview, that you got something new out of it or at least a refresher of something you've learned before. This information is so critical when it comes to our day-to-day lives. And I know we covered a lot of it. So please don't forget to subscribe to the show, share it with a friend, post it on your story. We need to get this information out to people and there is so much more to come, but for it to have an impact, to have the biggest impact on the community and on the people that we care about and our own lives for that matter, We need to get it out there. So please like, subscribe, share, leave a five-star review. That's another thing that will help a ton to get this show out to more people. And thank you for listening to the Bulletproof Bailey Show. We will see you next time. 